Let me invite you now to open your Bibles as we continue our journey through the book of Acts together. Today we're in chapter 20, and we're looking at verses 13 through 36. I'm not altogether sure that we will finish what we start today, but we will finish it eventually. And a lot of great stuff in this text. It's one of the primary valued and quoted text in all of uh, the Bible, especially in regards to the nature of the church. But today we're going to be looking at the relationship of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders, and we'll begin reading in verse 13, and we will go to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those that were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see, uh, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us light as you showed light into the darkness and created in our hearts faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray today that you would open our eyes so that we may see clearly the truth of God, that our hearts might love that truth and welcome that truth, even though it may correct us or reprove us or rebuke us or call us to account or comfort us or heal us or restore us. We pray that your spirit would speak through the word, and this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Paul's charge to the watchmen and shepherds in Ephesus, but before that, we need to take a look at some of the things that led up to the final message to the Ephesian elders. Paul was hurrying to return to Jerusalem by, Pas by Pentecost, which was 49 days after uh, Passover. And so he had celebrated Pentecost, I mean Passover, excuse me, in Philippi, and Luke sort of gives us a detailed itinerary that indicates that over three of those had elapsed. Seven days for the first unleavened bread, five for crossing the Aegean, seven days at Troas, four or five sailing down the Asian coast, and perhaps Paul wanted to present the offerings from the Gentiles at the harvest-related Feast of Weeks, which Jewish tradition also associated with Gentiles hearing God's word at Sinai along with Israel. He couldn't risk any kind of delay, and so he decided to bypass Ephesus, which a lot of people wonder why. Uh, where he had spent a great deal of time um, in ministry. Uh, so he bypassed it and landed south at Miletus. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. He knew perhaps if he had stopped at Ephesus, where he had ministered for three years, his progress in getting to Jerusalem would have been delayed. Yet concern for the Christians in Ephesus moved him to invest several days to summon and await the church's elders so that he might charge and encouraging them for their shepherding responsibilities in his absence. Now, Miletus is about 30 miles from Ephesus. It's sort of 
southwest of Ephesus, and it is a port city. Uh, if you went to Ephesus, that's how you would normally go from boat or from ship. And uh, 30 miles covered 10 miles a day would take his messenger three days to get there, maybe a day to get them ready to come back with him. And so you're looking at almost a week that Paul spends in Miletus. And in the context of the book of Acts, Paul addresses to the Ephesian elders, this is his last message preached in a predominantly Gentile venue and the only one addressed to Christians. These are Paul's closing words to the Gentiles, his unique sphere of evangelistic witness and ministry. And so his words are unique in many ways as he talks about pastoral ministry. Paul's words also derive poignancy from his announcement to these believers among whom Paul had ministered for three years that he would never see their face again, at least on this earth. That statement more than any other pierced the heart of those elders who loved him with grief and pain. And so Paul's speech is sort of a farewell discourse similar to the parting uh, words of other leaders in redemptive history. You'll remember Jacob's farewell to his sons, Moses' sermon on the plains of Moab, Joshua's charge to Israel, and Samuel's speech after confirming Saul as king. And even Jesus' upper room discourse, John 13 to 17, in which he prepared the disciples for his death, but also for the presence in a new way, through his presence in a new way through the spirit of truth. And so 2 Timothy uh, and 2 Peter are apostolic farewell discourses in written form preparing the church for life after the apostles' death. At a transition point in the covenantal leadership, the departing leader uh, directed God's people to look back to God's past faithfulness and ahead to the future challenges to their own uh, faithfulness. Now let's look back and then look forward as we consider the structure of Paul's farewell address or speech. And it shows how the past and the future are interrelated. Paul begins with the past and he recites his faithfulness. His faithfulness in teaching everything profitable or beneficial to everyone everywhere he went. And then he looks toward the future and announces his departure for Jerusalem in expectation that they would not see him again. Then he drew conclusions from his past faithfulness and his future absence. Regarding the past, Paul repeated the words, I did not shrink from declaring to support the claim of his faithful preaching of God's whole counsel or whole will exonerated him from the responsibility for the blood of his hearers. Mentioning his departure again in verse 29, he predicted the future dangers for the church and he charged the elders to protect God's sheep. Finally, Paul committed the elders to God's care for the future, recalling his own past pattern of generosity as an example of Christ-like servanthood. And so Paul rehearsed his integrity in, in the office 
not to defend his own reputation from criticism, but to teach the elders through his own example to engrave indelibly on their memories the picture of his tireless, tearful, truth-telling service as a pattern for their own ministry as shepherds of God's flock. And so let's look for a moment then at Paul as the faithful watchman. What is a watchman? He's one who watched over the city for any impending danger. That was his job and responsibility. So when Paul declared, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, he's alluding to a sobering metaphor used in the book of Ezekiel with his prophetic responsibility. God compared his spokesman to a watchman posted on the city wall to be on the lookout for impending attacks. If the watchman saw danger on the horizon, the trumpet would be sounded in alarm, so the citizens who fail to take the warning have only themselves to blame when they are destroyed. The watchman has done his job and is innocent of their blood, but if he fails to sound the trumpet, if the prophet fails to deliver God's warning of judgment and his call to repentance, then as the wicked die, God will hold the watchman, his spokesman, accountable for their blood. That's a sobering thought. And it's a sobering warning to me as a preacher of God's word and a watchman over God's flock with my fellow elders here at Spring Meadows. It's a very sobering word when you understand the responsibility that is before you. People often covet the office of elder in a church or leadership in a church because somehow it's status, somehow it, it makes people respect you, look up to you, maybe the motives aren't the best. But once they get in the office, they find out right away that I didn't know what kind of tiger by the tail I had here. This is a sobering ministry. Sobering. And we're called to teach and preach the truth of God, which is never popular in any culture. And uh, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in people pleasing. Let, let me explain that to you. Don't, don't you like for people to like you? Most of the time, I mean, aren't you desirous that people kind of approve of you and you just seem to be well-liked and well-respected? Don't go into ministry if that's what you think. Do not. Because people will not like you. Uh, some will. The ones that love the truth will respect that. But uh, others don't. And so our message is not our own. When I prepare a sermon... I don't just think up ideas out of my own head and say what I think is relevant or helpful to you. I always base my preaching on the text of God's Word. Why do I do that? Because it helps me sound the alarm. It helps me preach things that I may not be normally attracted to. It makes me talk about the hard things like judgment like the concept of eternal punishment, or the concept of hell uh, for people who reject the gospel and reject Christ. And that's, that's hard. It's hard stuff. 
But our message is not our own. It is God's. It has an urgency, a life or death consequence attached to it. And although the watchman himself cannot bring either judgment or rescue, what he does or fails to do has eternal consequences. So Paul's affirmation is a way of saying, I have been to you, the church at Ephesus, a faithful watchman. I have fully discharged my duty to deliver God's message. Notice the reasons that Paul had confidence. Number one, he brought a complete message. He brought a complete message. He held nothing back that would benefit uh, or profit those who heard him. He proclaimed the whole will of God. He didn't skip certain verses that he didn't like. Uh, he didn't skip concepts that he knew would be hard to swallow. He covered them all. He did not trim or shape his message to appeal to the taste of the listener or to avoid their prejudices. I remember the first day I enrolled in seminary, uh, one of the professors gave us an orientation class, and the first thing he said when he walked in front of the class was he looked at us, and he said, I want to tell you right away, if you've come to this school to have your prejudices confirmed, you're in the wrong place. We are not going to confirm your biases or your prejudices. We're going to make you question everything. I always told people when I went to seminary, I had a lot of questions. When I left, I had a lot more questions. Why? They challenged us on every level to examine our own bias and our own prejudice and our own ways of seeing things. And so Paul spoke the language of his audience and bridged the gap between their present understanding of God's revelation, but he dared not sift through God's revelation, discarding some truth as less profitable. Everything was profitable, simply the whole counsel of God. His entire redemptive plan promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament and through the gospel and according to the hearer's capacities, feeding milk to babies and meat to the mature, Paul preached the whole truth that God had revealed with Christ as the integrating center point. At other points, Paul summarized his messages in other ways. He spoke of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus, the gospel of the grace of God, the kingdom, and also the word of God's grace, verse 32. And so the word counsel that Paul uses here is one of the Greek words in the New Testament for the plan or purpose of God, and Paul uses it to encompass the scope of his preaching ministry. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's one of a group of words related to the foreordination of God. What God has planned for the world and those who inhabit it. The 40 plus writers who produced 66 books of Scripture saw themselves as caught up in the outworking of God's sovereign plan and purpose that entailed God first creating, then rescuing, and finally recreating, and eventually bringing glory to a sin-infested, fallen world through a breathtaking scheme of redemption and restoration involving the commissioning, sending, and incarnation of His Son. This would involve the birth, life, death, 
resurrection, ascension, high priestly ministry, second coming of Jesus as the substitute and representative of God's elect children who in time would be called, quickened, and saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tirelessly preached this plan in all its multifaceted glory, holding up different dimensions of that in different but complementary ways, reflecting the glory of God. Cross-shaped, Christ-centered preaching is vital. The preacher's commission is to declare the whole counsel of God, but the cross is the center of that counsel, and the Puritans knew that the traveler through the biblical landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. Paul never lost sight of that hill. He had brought his message again and again back to the central issue that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture uh, and that he, the Son of God, loved, or excuse me, in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Like Spurgeon, Paul could say, I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes. He has not yet come, but I mean to stand there until he does. What a great influence and help someone like Spurgeon is to us. But Paul not only preached the whole counsel of God to this church at Ephesus, but he did so with such a heart. He addressed a comprehensive audience, which included both Jews and Greeks. He didn't prefer people like himself before others who were different, nor people with historic covenantal connections before raw pagans or vice versa. Paul knew the, that absolutely everyone he met, uh, whether they were upstanding or down and out, self-respecting or scorned by others, needed the grace of God offered in the gospel. He was compelled by a compassionate motive. He spoke with self-forgetting urgency because he was utterly focused on the eternal and spiritual well-being of those he served, not on his own comfort or convenience. He, he ministered with all humility, not to boost his ego or enhance his reputation, but to draw others to Jesus. He served with great humility. A minister has to learn early on to deal with praise and actually grow in humility rather than in pride. I don't think this means that ministers will always be talking about humility. Paul did not. But humility has to be a an earmark, as it were, of their ministry. The 18th century evangelist, my favorite evangelist of all time, George Whitfield, developed a technique for handling people complimenting his ministry. He was the most popular preacher of his day and probably the most popular of all speakers of whatever type, whether political or otherwise. He was a spellbinder. He was brilliant. Everyone talked about his mastery of language and the control over the emotions of his audience. He had them, as it were, in the palm of his hand. 
Moreover, he lived in a day where there was not any competition among ministers that exist today through television and live streaming and media, etc. When Whitfield came to town, everybody streamed out to hear him. The minute they heard Whitfield was coming, people would drop their plows in the fields, their hammers in the blacksmith shops, their shuttles at the loom, and rush off to hear Whitfield. He spoke to thousands upon thousands in his day, as many as 20 to 25,000 people at a time without any amplification of his voice or sound system. Today we wonder how he could have done that. Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, by the way, his contemporary also wondered about it himself. He thought the reports of the size of Whitfield's congregation must be exaggerated, so when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, Franklin went to hear him. And he started near the front, then gradually worked his way back, seeing how far he could go and still hear Whitfield's voice. He counted the paces, which allowed him to figure out how many square feet there were in a circle about Whitfield. He allowed so many square feet to a person, and he discovered that Whitfield could indeed be heard by 25 to 30,000 people if they gathered around closely. You can imagine that if a man like that preached effectively as he did, large numbers of people would be blessed. When he finished preaching, people would flock around him and say, Mr. Whitfield, you were wonderful. Your words were eloquent. Whenever anybody would say that to him, Whitfield had a stock reply. Listen to what he said. He said, I know that. The devil told me that just as I was stepping down from the pulpit. I love that. I've quoted that. I think Dan, last time I told Dan he did a good job preaching, he quoted it back to me. But there was another story in a similar vein. There was a Scottish preacher, a young Scottish preacher, who was very self-confident, literally bounded up the steps into the pulpit one Sunday, filled with self-confidence and esteem. Unfortunately, he lost his way in the middle of his address. He became quite confounded and forgot his message. And as he came down from the pulpit humiliated, an old Scottish elder who had been present in the church that morning said to him, Young man, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have been able to have come down the way you went up. Paul had obviously gone up and come down properly many times. He had bowed low before God. And as a result, he knew that he was no different from anyone else. He was only a sinner saved by grace. If he had gifts, they had been used in the ministry. Those very gifts themselves were given to him by God. He had applied to himself what he said earlier to the Corinthians, Who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It would make a great difference in the lives of many pastors if they could only learn to think of their gifts like that. Paul served the church with tears, with brokenness. He was very compassionate upon those who listened to him. Paul mentioned that he preached a number of themes which I've already talked to you about. He uh, mentioned that he had preached the grace of the gospel 
and that he had preached the kingdom. When Paul speaks of preaching of grace, and I really appreciated what Rick had to say about grace this morning during his uh, time in helping us prepare for the confession of sins, but I'm only going to add a couple more things. He, he quoted the definition of grace that I was going to use, but I thought you could hear it more than one time. Here's what he said, or what I say. <laughs> our God of grace carries us all of our lives, even when and especially when we are completely unable to move forward on our own. In fact, as in our weakness, it is in our weakness that God's grace is made perfect. In our state of disgrace, God always and continually gives us grace. Disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out, even if you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are, you are or feel unlovable. Grace has the power to turn despair into hope. Grace lifts up, listens, transforms, and heals. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms, and wounds. It alienates and isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, repulsive, like a persona non grata, a person without grace. Disgrace silences us and shuns. To some, or to your sense of disgrace, God restores and heals and recreates through grace. A good short definition of grace is one-way love. The contrast between disgrace and grace is staggering. One-way love doesn't avoid us, but it comes close to us. Not because of our personal merit, but because we're so needy. It is the lasting transformation that takes place in human experience. One-way love is the change agent you need for the disgrace you are experiencing. Can you receive grace and be rid of your disgrace? The gospel of Jesus Christ answers that yes. Yes, grace is embodied in Christ. Between the Bible's bookends of creation and restored creation is the unfolding story of God's redeeming grace. Biblical creation begins in harmony, unity, peace, shalom. But redemption was needed because tragically humanity rebelled and the results were disgrace and destruction and the vandalism of shalom. But because God is faithful and compassionate, he restores his fallen creation and responds with grace and redemption. The good news is fully expressed in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus and its scope is as far as the curse is found. Jesus is the redemptive work of God in our own history, in our own human flesh. The historic, incarnational manifestation of the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ is the basis for Christian grace. Grace was realized in Jesus Christ. Scripturally, God's grace is so fully expressed in the person of work of Jesus that apart from Christ, there can be no talk of grace. And so Paul proclaimed to this church grace. He also commended the church 
to God's grace. Paul also spoke of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Not only the gospel of grace, but the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is his rule and reign over creation. And the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's protection. The kingdom of God, we know, is already here, but it is not yet fully here. And yet Paul preached the kingdom, and the kingdom is God's power is presently working in the world to restore and to bring back to fullness and flourishing the creation that he has given us. That God is not only restoring and saving and calling people to himself, but he's also calling his people to advance the kingdom by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, by proclaiming the gospel of grace. And so Paul preached not only the gospel of grace, but also the gospel of a kingdom, a king who rules and reigns over us. And so Paul brought a complete message. He brought a compassionate message. He spoke in all humility. Twice Paul mentions tears in which he persuaded others as revealing his longing that they turn from dead idols to find life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially to the Thessalonian church, he talked about turning from idols. By the way, idols are those things that we manufacture in our heart to replace God, to look to and have a relationship with the way we ought to be looking to and having a relationship with God. But idols only bring death. There's no life in that. There's no life in that. I'm preaching to myself too. Because I get sucked up into idolatry as much as anyone else I know. And I start looking to them for happiness or looking to them for peace or looking to them for joy or feeding upon them, thinking maybe I'll be a better person. But the reality is an idol is a con man running a scam. And every time you believe it, and you turn your heart and devote yourself to idols of the heart, like pleasure, or like uh, approval, or like confidence, or comfort, or strength, or power, any of those kind of idols, or popularity, or approval, any of those idols promise life, but only deliver death. And so Paul was constantly telling people to turn away from those idols, do a 180 and move in the other direction and cling, Velcro, if you will, to Christ. Amen. He and He alone is life. And so Paul constantly preached that kind of gospel all the time to the people. Uh, Paul knew that God had sovereignly chosen a people for himself that he would surely regenerate, preserve, and glorify. Yet that assurance that God had done so never bred in Paul a cold indifference to his hearers. Rather, with tears, he tells us, he urged people to repent and believe. Now, I believe something about tears and preaching. The less, the better. <laughs> if you want to be effective... <laughs> In preaching, don't cry every time you preach, okay? That's, that's just, sometimes I feel like pry, uh, crying because it's not going well and I just want to get out of here and go home. But uh, <laughs> other, t 
other times. But listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's not a monotone statement. We implore doesn't really get it across. He said, I am begging you. I am begging you be reconciled to God. Because I know what's on the other end. And if you're not reconciled with him now, you'll be separate from him for all of eternity. And so Paul pled with people to be reconciled to Christ. The purity of Paul's motives was seen in the troubles he endured through the plots of the Jews. Rejection by his own people, the ancient covenant people, wounded Paul deeply. I understand that. I mean, if, if you're here visiting for the first time this Sunday and on your way out, you look at me and say, Pastor, that's the worst sermon I ever heard. I might go, well, yeah, I'm okay. And I'm not going to be that bothered by it. But if you're my wife and I'm riding home with you, and you look at me and say, what's the matter with you? What happened to you today? You dropped the ball. You fumbled. You couldn't connect two sentences. What is the matter with you? You had no connection to this. Now, that's never come out of her mouth. She's probably thought it. But what if she said that to me? It would hurt me a whole lot more than what anybody else in this building would say. And even if the ruling elders came to me and said, Man, we don't know what's up with you, but you have to do a better job preaching. You're just not doing well. You're not connecting with anything. That would bother me deeply, too. But Paul's own people, the ones who he said he would be accursed from the Lord for, his Jewish brethren so soundly rejected him at every turn. And it wounded him. But he endured it for the sake of bringing good news to the Gentiles. And the same spirit who compelled him to travel to Jerusalem foretold the sufferings waiting him there. Why was Paul so passionate to get back to Jerusalem? And it wasn't for reasons maybe you think. He wanted to take the offering from the Gentile churches in Macedonia. The Jews who had believed in Christ in Jerusalem in the first century were in poverty they had been booted out of their jobs and their living situations and their family relationships they were abandoned and they were suffering and they were poor and only the miracle of a thing like the gospel could take gentiles who hated jews and jews who hated gentiles to take up an offering for their relief paul wanted to show this gospel produces reconciliation and results that are miraculous. And so, Paul had a single-minded purpose. And finally, this we're not, see, we only got one point today, did we? Two points. Unless you want to go on. No. Well, as my pastor used to say uh, when I was a young fellow, uh, amen or oh me. Paul preached with committed consistency everywhere, all the time. He taught in public house to house. Publicly, Paul preached in open venues such as the synagogues, the lecture hall at Tyrannus, 
House to house refers primarily to gatherings of believers in larger homes of affluent Christians, but it would also include private ministry to individuals and families. Paul's passion to bring the gospel was not limited to settings in which he could gain fame or be the center of attention. He was also eager to share God's truth in settings that were out of the public eye. He supported his ministry team from his tent-making trade. Paul preached and persuaded day and night for three years. He did not approach the ministry as an eight-to-five, 40-hour-week job, nor did he fly into a city and rack up statistics and leave. Whenever possible, Paul stayed long enough to help new Christians put their roots down deeply into the truth of Christ. In his comprehensive ministry, he constantly preached God's whole truth with urgent compassion to all sorts of people in various venues. Paul set the pace for the elders who would build on the foundation he laid. And next week, we will look at how Paul charges the elders at Ephesus. I think that's worthy of a standalone message by itself. So as we look at this text today and we see Paul, as he addresses these Ephesian elders, he reviews his ministry. It is an amazing thing to see and witness and should move us to share the gospel of Jesus with everyone we know, everyone we're around. Do you look for opportunities? Do you look for opportunities to talk to people about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's one thing I see in Paul, whether in prison, whether in uh, on, on Mars Hill, whether in the lecture hall at Tyrannus, rather in the synagogue, he was always talking to people about the grace of the gospel. So should we, and the reason we don't is either fear or the gospel is not really at work in our hearts, producing the boldness and humility we need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text before us today. There's much here, much here for all of us. We thank you that you hold up before us the ministry of a man like the Apostle Paul, who wasn't perfect by any means, who who would be the first to say he was chief of sinners, and yet in all humility preached the truth and taught the truth without looking back and without shaping the message to appease and please those who were listening. Father, we pray for the same grace to be at work in us, and we pray that you will be glorified because we have met here today and because we've been with you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.